0: Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your host for today's show... Today's episode of Silvacast is brought to you by McCoy Construction and Forestry. Check out McCoy Construction and Forestry, your John Deere dealer. With 16 dealerships spanning the Midwest, McCoy offers new or used construction and forestry equipment, rentals, parts and service, and product support. Visit McCoyCF.com and follow them on social media to see what McCoy has to offer. Good morning, Bradley. Uh, welcome to season four of Silvacast. I hope you have your thinking cap on today.
1: Season four. That, that's quite the momentous occasion, Greg. Season four.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they <laughs> yeah.
1: kept us around a long time. Yep. All right. Oh, so, thinking cap. All right. I, I haven't had a thinking camp since uh, elementary school, Greg. So, this one doesn't <laughs> fit, but we'll give it a try. A thinking All right. th- well.
0: You had a whole thinking camp? <laughs> cap camp. Good Lord. Okay. All right. It doesn't fit, but I've got it. Okay, well, that's good because it's time for more trivia. Oh. oh. You ready? All right. I can see where this is going. Oh. Okay. Good Lord. Here's the first one. All right. How tall is the tallest tree in Wisconsin? Uh, do you want it to the nearest foot? Yes. I have no idea. It's 157 feet, Brad. <laughs> Not so good on that one. Okay, here goes. Second one. All right. How many board feet were in the largest? sled load of logs ever pulled by two horses
1: so so two horses not by three horses right because that was a completely different
0: record that's a totally different record yes and i want it to the nearest board foot um come on take a stab (laughs) oh no freaking clue that i have no freaking clue (laughs) good question okay at 36,055 board feet that's a lot oh good okay okay last question here this one's easy all right what is the most board feet per acre ever recorded from a harvest in wisconsin
1: well don't i i get to use like our silvicultural answer of it depends at least on one of these right just like on just this one board you haven't specified just, come on you haven't specified the scale that we're using right yeah is this scribner is this <laughs> you haven't you have not you haven't, it's a wide range mm. of answers here, Greg. So you're, you're it stalling. really depends. You're stalling. Yeah, it depends, and it's
0: that's my way of saying I have no freaking clue. One hundred thousand board feet, whatever system per acre. Wow, from one acre. From one acre.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. that's impressive. So. It's really impressive when you think about what we get now.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, that's well, really that's, impressive.
1: That's sad. Okay, all right, but okay. Now, seriously, though. Did you have those memorized? Um n- no. Okay, all right. And <laughs> and maybe let's let's shave off a little bit of the uh you know the stuff on the top of this so uh or maybe dig in a little deeper uh,
0: why are we doing this? Okay. Um you'll see where I'm going with this. I'm going to ask you a more general question. What do all these statistics have in common? Well, they're just think about it. They're associated with
1: Large well, okay, so with large trees, right? So you're talking about large, so large yep. is the one thing yep. that puts these all together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want a species? Sure. All right. Well, we had one, and, and there is a, I, I can see where you're going now. So, <laughs> we, so I, it took me a little while, Greg, but I got there. So, this is talking about things associated with our history with Eastern white pine.
0: Ding, 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 ding.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay, all right. Thank you. Yeah. Brad, a dazzling display of logic. I, well, you know, I I think we all realize and we all recognize that eastern white pine, well, first off, it's one of my favorite trees. Mm-hmm. And second, I think you and I have classified it as a charismatic megaflora for here in <laughs> Wisconsin.
0: So I think that is, I think this is big news. Uh, well, you've classified it as that. I didn't even know that was a term, but uh, I kind of like it. Uh, yeah, it's good stuff. Charismatic megaflora. Okay. Yep. Well, You'll be happy to know that today on Silvacast, we will be discussing, and you guessed it, eastern white pine silviculture. And joining us today is Dr. Bill Livingston from the University of Maine. And you you know Bill, and uh, he's worked with us on some other projects. Uh, but Bill conducts research on the health and management of eastern white pine and is the chair of the Northeast Multistate Project on White Pine Health. Giddy up. Hi, Bill. Welcome to Silvacast.
2: Hi, Greg, glad to be here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's good to kind of bring you back to Wisconsin because um, if people didn't go to our state SAF meeting, you came all the way out uh, for our SAF meeting, which was on White Pine. So we really appreciate that because we just really like that exchange of ideas, particularly between the Northeast and the Lake States, which we don't, you know, I don't think we do enough.
2: Yep, I agree. And it was a real pleasure for me to come out and visit. And it's, you know, I'm glad uh, glad people learned something from me because I certainly learned a lot, a bit more about white pine by, by coming to Wisconsin.
1: It, Bill, it was a real treat having you in Kashina at that meeting. And in fact, I think I told you before, your talk was one of the uh, highest graded or rated talks <laughs> at that. So so hey, so yeah, <laughs> thumbs up on that. Ooh, that was really good. Oh,
0: that's good to hear. That's good to hear. I just does, well, does it,
1: he get a prize Really that? He did a good job. It's it's an internal prize, Greg. So
0: so maybe a good place to start, Bill, is can you just tell us a little bit about where you work and what you do?
2: Well, I work here at the University of Maine, which is in Orono, and that's right in the middle of the state. We're the land grant institution for for the state. And I've been here since 1985, so it's been 37 years and working here. um, I was hired on as the forest pathologist and I've continued working that area, though really it's broadened out really to look at tree health in general. And so I've been teaching the tree pest and disease class and then doing a number of research projects on various types of primarily tree declines. And one of them was actually on white pine okay. in the early 2000s that we related to drought. And then um, yeah. issues came up again, particularly with some canker fungi that were affecting the trees and some additional dieback in the uh, around 2015 or so, 13 and 15. And that got me working again in white pine. And that spread into where people have reported similar problems in the southern part of the range, in the southern Appalachia. And we got in contact with people down there. And so really for the last almost 10 years, it's I've, I've been really focusing in on white pine health problems. And then as I learn more about that, I've really learned more about white pine health and white pine... Uh, the industry, which is very important in Maine, and then also the the potential climate changes that's occurring. That uh, That's um, mm-hmm. a lot of interesting impacts that it can have on white pine. So really, I've been traveling throughout the range mm-hmm. of white pine. That's why I was glad to come out to Wisconsin to understand the species more. Yeah. But also this exchange of ideas between the different regions, the Northeast, Southern Appalachian, and the Lake States, I think we can... Um, learn a lot from each other it it, it is amazing you go out to different areas to see how much is the same and how much is different
0: so you keep getting pulled back into white pine issues over that whole span and you're also the chair and correct me if i've got the title wrong but the northeast multi-state project on white pine health can you just tell us briefly what that project is is this part of this being pulled back into white pine
2: yeah it was part of where uh we were Dealing with people, a number of people in the Northeast, but then it's also when we were looking at funding for the Forest Service, they mentioned, you know, there have a number of similar issues that were being brought up with white pine in in, uh, North Carolina, Virginia, and Georgia, and they said we should make contact with them. And we've done that. And so we had this group in many different states working together on, on the similar issues. And so the USDA has a multi-state program for the land grant institutions. And so we put in saying this sounds, looks like a good project for that purpose and and they've approved. So we set this up really to continue the communications among Mm -hmm. the different states on the white pine issues.
0: And that's how we met. That's right. We started looking at, or also including some of the lake states. Yes. That's fascinating.
1: you know, Bill, maybe kind of reaching back a little bit before your white pine work and maybe all the way back. Um, <laughs> we, we'd like to think, we'd like to ask our, our guests, you know, what got you into forestry or what got you interested in being in the woods or working with, with what you do now?
2: Oh, um, yeah, I'll start back and then kind of quickly move forward. The the Gosh, I don't know, maybe almost 50 years I've been working with this. So, you know, originally growing up, I grew up in the Detroit area, so I'm also from from the Midwest, Lake States area, uh, but urban and like a lot of people get into forestry. I was not thrilled about the the city, but really enjoyed my times and scouting and some family trips out to the woods. And so I decided that's where I wanted to be. And then I looked at, well, what could I study and then I thought, forestry looks good, and where could I study it? And there's this place at Michigan Tech that was 600 miles away from Detroit. And I thought, yeah, that mm-hmm. sounds, sounds like where I want to be, <laughs> up in the woods of the up, Upper Peninsula uh, on Lake Superior. And so that's where I did my undergraduate. So that's what got me in, in going into forestry. And then I'll talk a little bit about getting into the white pine, and that really has to deal with Maine. And it's like the work I've been doing, I've dealt with declines in the white pine, also with beach and beach bark disease, which um, has gotten into the lake states, at least the UP, but um, has been really drastically impacting the beach in the eastern U.S. I've right. also worked with balsamolia delgid problems, but a lot of these problems, you know, come up with, you do the studies on them, and there's not much you can do about it. Whereas I looked worked with the white pine and my initial one on the die back there was density issues were really the what was predisposing the trees to a drought, inciting drought event that caused half the trees in some stands to die. Uh, and then this re- uh, most recent issues dealing with the canker fungus coliseopsis and uh, pine bass scale. But what really struck me with white pine is that if you manage it well, you'll take care of the problems. And so that's really what, you know, for my years in the profession is to say, I could actually say, you know, here's a solution, that here we have some serious health problems dealing with the Mm -hmm. tree, but if you manage it properly, you'll take care of it. And so, you know, I really like that story of all the other times is saying, you know, here's the issue, you can't do anything about it, you know, um, salvage what you can and then move on with the other species. But with white pine, that's not the story that if you if you can manage it and yeah. and there are a lot of excellent ideas out yeah. there of, of how to manage the tree. It's a tree that really is b- very well suited to to management options uh, that you can you can avoid a lot of the, a lot of these issues.
0: That reminds me uh, not to go down a, a digress down a rabbit hole, but that reminds me of our uh, past forest pathologist Jane Cummings Carlson. I don't know if you knew Jane. <laughs>
2: oh yes, I, yes, I, I did my PhD at Minnesota, so I got to know some of the people in in the Lake States quite well.
0: Jane always told this story when she first started the state forester at the time told her as a performance measure you needed to decrease the forest health problems by three percent a year in the state (laughs) and she's like how do i do that (laughs)
2: yeah some things are beyond our control
0: (laughs) it was optimistic performance yeah yeah i was i was trying to think bill um about maybe where to start this conversation which you already kicked off on Eastern White Pine. And uh, just thinking about maybe a place to start is just looking back a little bit. And um, White Pine has a really significant history in Wisconsin with our logging era, for example, Um, and even before that um, uh, uh, with our uh, indigenous uh, peoples. What does that story look like in Maine? It's our our state
2: tree is the White Pine and we're known as the Pine Tree State. Uh, After the French and Indian War, so the the mid 1700s, the the lands opened up to Europeans in the state. And actually talk a little bit about the history there. Um, Maine is still almost all privately owned. We have the least amount of government owned land in, in the country percent wise. And that states back to the King of England at this time, granted most of the northern two-thirds of the state to seven families in England. And that tradition of the private holdings has maintained itself. And partly that's true because the soil here is so poor that agriculture never got a hold in most of the states. So it's always remained in trees. Uh, and there's still one family, the Pingree family, that traces back their ownership to this original grant by the King of England. But one of the first trees that they went in to get uh, was the white pine. The white pine here would grow four to six feet diameter, would be well over 120 feet tall, up to 100 feet tall. And the English came here and just saw that these are the masts for their ships. And so the the king had its blaze on the pine trees here, basically an uh, inverted V with a, uh, you know, uh than a, a vertical mark looking like a pine tree, so that was the king's mark, and nobody could cut that tree mm-hmm. under the penalty of death. So those were the king's pine that were reserved for the English Royal Navy, and but then a lot of the other harvesting mm-hmm. came on. So the first river drives in North America occurred in Maine, and was mm-hmm. in the 1700s up to 1800s, uh, were the for the white pine. And when Henry David Thoreau wrote The Main Woods and his travels through there, <laughs> the pine had already been harvested for 50 years. He reads some of his readings and saying where he come out, comes across these large white pine stumps. So for the European history in the state, that you know, white pine is what originally brought people from, from Europe to settle here, and one of the first... Natural resources that that they extracted where it was the white pine, and that was true up until the mid 1800s, when they had cut most of the easily accessible white pine, and then switched more over to red spruce. So really, for the European history, it's a, a very important, you know, it's why why they got started here. So uh, a lot of our heritage is is linked to the white pine, and even today. It's still our commercially, uh, economically, our most important species by mm-hmm. far compared. Other spruce and fir and pulp species have higher volumes harvested. But when you look at the value, white pine is like the standing value, value is estimated at $4 billion of, of current, with current markets in the state. Mm-hmm. So it's still a, a, a really valuable tree to, to the state of Maine. So it wasn't hard for me to justify working on white pine.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: And, and Greg, and that's a little different than our experience here. If there was a King's Pioneer, it belonged to Elvis. It didn't belong <laughs> to the King of England or something like that. So, and I don't know of any. So, but, so it sounds like maybe you're, we have a hmm. slightly similar history, but maybe ours is condensed, right? Because we had a, a later on, we had a, a much larger event, you know, just a cutover occurred fairly quickly. Uh, as we learned actually in Kashina, uh, listening to Bob Smale talk about that. But what we've seen now is maybe this rebound and we're starting to see like long-term trends where we're going to have more white pine and, and things like that. Is that a, a similar mm-hmm. situation in Maine?
2: It's the white pine. Well, it's partly in Maine that we had a lot of fields cleared from the mid 1800s up until mm-hmm. 1900, even up to world war two. And then a lot of the, our soils here are poor. And then, so most of those fields were abandoned and white pine is just very well adapted to competing with grass that was in these old fields. So we actually in the southern part of the state and then into New Hampshire and Vermont have a higher incidence or amount of white pine than was typically found here 200 years ago. So actually we we've had this pulse of increased amount of white pine and that's partly why there's you know we have a lot of commercial use for right now because there's abundance of it. So we're expecting in some of the places where these old field pines that are growing on hardwood sites are eventually going to convert back to hardwoods. But we've got a lot of white pine regenerating throughout the state's forests. So we're looking at the the current levels as being stable and that with warming temperatures, we're really expecting the white pine prevalence to, to increase with time. And in many areas that have typically over the last thousand years grown, red spruce is going to be switching back over to white pine uh, in, in the state. So we're, yes, we're looking at um, this pulse of field pine is going to go through. And so areas there, uh, we'll see it being replaced by, by hardwoods, but overall in the state, the pine is going to be increasing in, in other forested locations. And so it's going to maintain its prominence in our forest. It's going to shift a bit, but it's going to maintain its pro- prominence and uh, definitely maintain a very commercial part of our, our forest industry.
1: You know, it's interesting um, at the state SAF meeting that you presented at, and, and then for our listeners who weren't there, this is in Kashina, Wisconsin, so it was at uh, in the Menominee uh, Nation. And you talked about kind of that economic importance of white pine and you, and you alluded to that a little earlier. And and that's a little bit different maybe than what we see here in the Lake States, because here it may have had a really high economic importance, I think, you know, for settlement and things like that, but it's, it's not nearly as important as it maybe as it was. Um, and what I was shocked at was the volumes that are coming out of Maine and the volumes of the other places that, that you had, or that you talked about, it seems to me like there must be a fundamental difference in the markets between here and what you guys are looking at. Oh,
2: it is. Uh, the markets here in the Northeast include a lot of cutting white pine for products. So white pine is not, is not used for dimensional lumber, but it's used for other wood products. So uh, window frames, uh, one mill I know of uses a lot of it for, well, deciding you you can see me on zoom, but you, deciding my office mm-hmm. is the knotty pine, paneling there is all white pine and a, a mill almost exclusively saws for that so it's being used to produce these products and there's a number of mills in the northeast the uh, northeast lumbermen's Associ- lumber mills association is primarily focused around the white pine mills in the northeast so they've developed this this market for for quite a few years now and it's uh it, it's a high valued market and it's like are, I know the one mill ships, it's siding here down to Tennessee. Um, uh, it's become very popular down there. So they, they have found different areas for, or different regions uh, to sell their products. So we have, we have that. Um, in the southeast, it's not as big, but down there they do use the white pine. And especially in North Carolina, they have mills using it for window siding. And so actually North Carolina, when you look at the number, amount of pine being cut, is the third highest. It's higher uh, higher than Wisconsin. I'm looking at the figures here. So it's about 50% more cut in North Carolina than what's cut in Wisconsin because, because of they, they have that also high value market for, for the pine there. So it's really the mills that have gotten established and. uh have established themselves in that market has allowed the, the stumpage value to be, be quite high for the white pine.
0: Yeah. We just have uh stumpage values that aren't close to what, uh, um, what you're seeing in the, the Northeast, but it, yeah. maybe Brad, like, yeah. isn't that some of that too, is like, we don't have those markets because we had this big dip in supply after the big cutover. We really didn't have, those kind of volumes but now we're starting to see volumes but we just don't have that kind of industry you know built up yeah. like it is yeah. in the northeast
2: yeah it's the the competition for the white pine has been primarily radiata pine coming in from you know new south america you know where they're growing radiata pine in, in these high productivity plantations the wood has some similar characteristics uh but it seems like that's as fuel costs have gone up and up and so it seems like they're no longer too concerned about that competition. So it's really, they're just really the mills are competing with other white pine mills, uh, and supply, mm-hmm. gosh, uh, they've got some, some major mills. There's one by Irving woodlands that's in south Southwestern Maine and they're pulling in wood from, you know, up to a hundred miles away to try and keep, keep mm-hmm. their mill going. So it's, uh, it's high demand. I'm, you know, I've been kind of surprised that it seems like if you're getting the, the base out there, it seems like it's just a matter of time before somebody recognizes that and you'll have a mill that, that they want to put in to take advantage right. of that yeah. resource.
1: Is, are there any, um, I know it's, it's always different. It's always hard to talk about markets you know, in different parts of the country because there are so many factors that go into that. Um, but one thing we wrestle with here, at least foresters here might wrestle with the idea that or, or the, the reality that uh, once a tree reaches a certain size, we have a harder time. So oftentimes, pine, white pine in smaller diameters are easier to sell than white pines in larger diameters. Is, is that true where in Maine?
2: Well, up until recently, pulpwood was no market whatsoever. And with the biomass market disappearing, the, a lot of the, that size wood just got left in the woods. We now have one pulp mill that is now worked out a recipe to where they will buy white pine. So that's been encouragement for the smaller size pieces. Once it gets up, there now there's some mills that can take uh, an 8-inch top and would accept it there. So once it gets up to 10 or 12 inches, the mills will take it. They're, you know, and they'll take a 24 inch, 18 inches. I think some mills look at it as being optimum, 18 to 20 inches, but then they will take trees up to 30 inches. So, um, and there is grading. They have a grading system here. And so even with the larger diameters that it usually has the higher quality wood and that mills are happy, happy to take that, especially if it's, if, if it's high quality.
0: Yeah, I think some of our mills are just not set up for those very large diameter logs, and so that becomes a little problematic yeah. for us. Yeah,
1: and, and I never, yeah. I never did think about it in that difference in history. In that, like you're cutting, it was kind of more protected. So you never had like maybe a large swath of white pine all come through at once, right? It was this longer period of of exploitation. Yeah,
2: it's kind of like the technology that up till the mid eighteen hundreds, you know, they were still using. You know, the first part was just with axes and horses, and then they yeah. they finally yeah. got the saws and bow saws. So, but still, it's very low mm-hmm. uh, volume yeah. removals. And then they cut the still over a hundred years. They they could cut off most of the white pine. But you're right, there was still a lot of white pine. Well, it's also that our cutover, that pulse ended in 1850. So yeah, it's let's. been 100 years since that initial pulse came through. And white pine grows pretty good. So that's what we're dealing with now is've uh, got a lot of the maturing stands that to, uh, and it looks like it's sustainable. We were somewhat concerned that we did not have enough regenerating, but it's coming back in a lot of mixed stands. And white pine is, is doing well with that, with that mix. And so we're, we're still optimistic that we're still going to have a, a good supply of white pine well into the future.
0: Bill, I'm really, uh, white pine is just such a cool species. And I think um, the silviculture of it has always really fascinated me, especially how it's kind of wrapped up in some of the major diseases like blister rust and so on, and how it's changed over time. Mm -hmm. So, just kind of thinking about some of those silvicultural issues and um, just some questions that uh, I see and I think Brad sees pop up with our foresters commonly. And I'm just curious how you all handle it in the Northeast. So, just just thinking maybe a a good starting point for that Mm -hmm. is thinking about young stands and intermediate treatments and one thing that we see especially on our poor sands are very dense young stands of regenerating white pine so like many you know 10,000 plus seedlings saplings to the acre uh on these these sand uh drier sites and our foresters are looking at that and wondering do we need to do some kind of pre-commercial release like will those stands of saplings stagnate um, or will they start to differentiate and develop? Um, do you um, see that in the Northeast, or have you talked about that issue?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's very common in the North- Northeast, that just about all our white pine stands are naturally regenerated. And so if they're not in the mix, if they, if, particularly if you manage to get the pine generation, yes, we do have a number of locations where we're dealing with tens of thousands of stems of regenerating pine coming up. So uh, that is an issue. A lot of places, they just let it develop on its own. Uh, Where I've seen it, the pine does differentiate. So it's just gonna take longer than if you were to actually go in and and space it out. But it does differentiate it, but it also puts it under stress. So it kind of depends on how long it takes it to differentiate. if stands get up into the pole size and still are, are very mm-hmm. dense, that's where I've really seen uh, decline issues and other canker issues coming in that these pole size stands that are, are overstocked, you know, the pine will basically eventually thin out itself. That, that's what I mm-hmm. saw is that, you know, yeah, yeah. That these people who were, uh growing these pole size stands and we're counting on the on the lumber there uh didn't get in and thin it soon enough and when we had a drought half the stems died and basically got the density down to the lower density that the management guidelines had recommended so the pine will then eventually differentiate and thin itself out but yeah that means you're going to see a lot of the stems dying in the process so if you wanted to try and capture that wood, then yes, going in and spacing it out, and making sure as it's developing that those trees, you know, the lower density trees, those those are going to survive. They're going to put on all the wood that would have been spread out among the, the other stems. So you 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 space it out. You're going to get the healthy trees, but also trees that are are growing, putting on quite a bit of wood. And and uh, as long as the pine has the space. It, it's going to be healthy and it's going to survive and it's going to tolerate other potential stresses. Uh, uh, drought stress, if it's under competition, it's very vulnerable. If it's well spaced, it's going to tolerate that drought much, much better. So, Yeah.
1: And, and speaking, speaking of space, I know the one thing that's been really curious to me because we haven't really, we're, we're still new to it, or maybe at least I'm new to it, is this idea of low density thinning applied in the white pine and so there was the idea that you know we would set a standard b line like in our stock our gingrich style stocking charts and you guys have 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 your standard b line but then you have a managed stand b line so you can drop that down a little bit yeah. and that's different
2: it's because of our market that there's a preview they mills will play a premium pay a premium for you know larger diameter smooth smooth white pine and what Bob Seymour, who's a silviculturist here for, for a number of years and his studies with white pine, um, unlike a lot of trees that slow down once they get 50, 60 feet tall, they slow down diameter wise and growth wise, white pine doesn't. So you go in there and start spacing it out to get 12 inch trees and 18 inch trees and 20 inch trees. There's no loss in productivity. And so they, and that's where we get into extended shelterwood. that, you know, our low densities, we're getting down to basically a seed tree, you know, less than a hundred trees per acre are left purposely to continue to put on wood and, and basically regenerate the next stand naturally underneath it. So, you know, that's the idea of the spacing is, you space it out, white pine responds you know, and mm-hmm. health-wise, you're not going to have the issues that we've seen with the the other dense stands, with with cankers and and diebacks and dying out and droughts. Uh, and the other is the productivity: is that you you space it out, the pine responds, and as long as it continues to have the the spacing, so we go in periodically and keep reducing that density, um, the the pine continues to put on the, on the diameter growth.
1: Yeah any problem with retained lower branches so in that kind of system
2: Um, that's one thing bob seymour will recommend that if you go in and do early spacing that really to get make it economic sense here because they pay the premium for it is you do need to go and improve the prune off the bottom branches you know try and get that first log or when you go basically when you go in and do a thinning of the pole size trees you're going to want to Basically, keep the density to where there's no longer any branches dying off. That the, tr- the crown maintains itself at the time where you open it up. So the live crown ratio just keeps getting larger and larger to where you're you're really targeting to try and get half the tree in live crown.
1: Hmm.
2: And so that is either you let it stay dense and kind of let it naturally uh, prune itself on the on the lower branches. Or if you go in and open it up to get the better productivity, but then you really should prune the trees to get rid of the lower branches. Otherwise, you'll have a you know a lot of black knots in that in that
1: lower lower log. And now a word from our sponsors.
0: Today's episode of SilvCast is brought to you by the Nelson Paint Company. Since 1940, foresters all over North America have relied on Nelson Paint for tree marking solutions. Nelson Paint manufactures paint designed to withstand the harshest weather conditions in the field, and the Spot tree guns have lasted the test of time. Visit nelsonpaint.com to learn more about their products. And now, back to the show. What interests me about that low-density management, and as Brad said, we don't practice it very much here in the Lake States, uh, but Brad, you and I have had that conversation about w- a lot of our pine stands have very small live crown ratios and and right. um, had this conversation, should we be keeping much you know, higher live crown ratios than we're keeping now, um, especially for forest health reasons, just trying to keep those stands vigorous when we have a number of these different diseases impacting them
2: because that, that is my experience with the white pine is you, you get these stent stands and live crown ratio is probably the best indicator. And if it gets below 30%, if it's only down, to, you know, the rule is here, if it's like below 30%, don't treat it, that they're not gonna respond. Or if you do, you you go in and thin it out, they may not be stable enough to, to stand up mm-hmm. in the wind. So it's really, that's probably, if you're looking at wanting to 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 thin out the stand, is how long the wait is, you know, look at the live crown ratio. You really got to get in there, but it's getting at 30%. You really need to get it in there and open up the stand to keep the crowns from receding any even further.
1: I, I know that's a mistake I've made in the past in managing is that if you go back and you're looking at things and you don't have the right data in front of you, that sometimes it's easy to make wrong decisions and live crown ratio sometimes like knowing the basal area and knowing the average diameters and things like that, it tells part of the story, but life crown ratio really lets you know exactly what you need to know about some of the management.
2: Yeah. Because that'll respond to the site. So the basal area on a good site, you know, that's what I noticed. Uh, maybe you're not aware. Don't think of it that way. But when uh, my visit to Wisconsin and we went out to the Menominee stands, yep. You know, your soils, there are a lot better than what we have. No. So we could see your trees could probably, and I was, I was surprised at how healthy the trees looked even at the density. In Maine, I'd see trees at that density and I'd know they'd be full of cankers. So, whereas in Wisconsin, they, they, they look pretty good even at the higher density. So I think the live crown ratios are kind of a good indicator and can kind of even out. Like if you're talking those sandy sites, yeah, the, you're going to have to pay much more t- attention to the health of the trees on those nutrient-poor sites compared to the the better soil sites where you're trying to fight off the aspen.
0: Yeah, well, not all our sites are <laughs> super, <laughs> <Yeah>. unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to say we've got great soils. spread. Yeah. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. everything in Wisconsin is just a paradise here. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. Well, I think I think that low density management is something we've talked about, and I think we're going to need to investigate maybe a little more here in Wisconsin. I mean, we've talked about it too from a climate adaptation standpoint. I think you mentioned Bill just trying to maybe improve uh, drought resistance um, particularly where we have projected you know maybe some more drought periods mm-hmm. uh, coming in our climate the other
2: thing i've looked at it for the management of white pine here is especially for the smaller landowners a lot of people like big trees and so this crop tree management approach to white pine it's it's a way to do that that i saw one stand where they kept their about 75 trees uh, on the site and they had to be re- regenerating stand underneath and the stand underneath already got up to about 30, 40 feet. But so when they finally, you know, the markets and well, the trees were getting over 30 inches and the markets were ready and they needed the wood. So they went in and removed the top. But it was just a magnificent stand that they maintained for like another 30, 30 or 40 years. So yeah. uh, you know, people like the idea of managing for big trees, white pine. If you go through the the low density management and then you know uh then you're actually feeding into extended shelterwood if you want to call that or see tree but basically yeah you open up the stand to the point where the pine will regenerate but you don't have to remove the overstory you can leave the overstory there as long as the owner wants or the markets will allow it's like for here in Maine that's the most productive period for the pine that you're looking at where you know it's putting on the maximum amount of growth and the highest quality, most valuable wood. So it's why I remove the trees until until there's really you have to or it makes economic sense. But it, yeah. uh, the low density and working with the crop trees just can develop these these beautiful large stands of large white pine with a healthy regenerating forest underneath. Yeah.
1: It. Which, which kind of and Greg that does lend itself to maybe a little bit of a difference and that we've always thought about and maybe this is just me but I think like our guidance is kind of recommended that we we go with even age management and that we don't really look at like the multiple age management or even uneven age management but it sounds like in your experience that it's maybe not as not as set as a rule, like where you are in Maine?
2: It's something again, Bob Seymour, when he was looking at the white pine and productivity is what he's been recommending. You know, standard shelter wood is you get the stand established and the idea is you go in and remove the trees. And so if you've got 18, 20 inch white pine, sure that could be done, but his thought was it makes more economic sense to let the trees grow. That as long as it's at a low enough density, Usually, you know, at least get 70, 70% sunlight or just 30% cover. The pine regeneration is going to grow well. And uh, and if you have weevil problems, then maybe more shade might be helpful. But uh, still, uh, you can maintain this low density of, of trees that you use to establish the stand. But economically, it makes sense to leave them, whereas probably with most shelterwoods, the idea is... You know, you want to remove them to, to capture the value. But with white pine, you can leave those trees, and they're going to put on more value than, uh, you know, makes more economic sense leaving them to grow than removing them and just waiting uh, a few more decades before the, the regenerating stand has some, some value. Now with this other stand where they just removed them, you already have white pine that's Oh gosh, you know, ten, eight, ten inches. You know, another ten years, they'll have a commercial cut in there to where they'll start spacing spacing those out to let them grow into two larger, larger stems.
0: Yeah, it almost sounds like a two age management. It is, basically, it is. Mm-hmm. And those, yeah. and those canopy covers you mentioned, Bill, on the shelter wood, are almost um, on a seed tree. I think you kind of alluded to that.
2: It's really, I, I'd look at it that, you know, they're really getting the densities down to where people probably call it more of a seed yeah. tree yeah.
1: than, than yeah. shelter wood. And we have that debate here. I think a lot of times we'll be in the woods, we'll be looking at a shelter wood, or someone will call it a shelter wood, and it might really be a seed tree. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we haven't been as, we've been a little loosey goosey with those terms over time, I think. Yeah.
2: And I think that's what's come here. You know, the forester basically has a feel for it looking at the site and, kind of decides this is what he decides it's going to do not too much too worried about whether it's a shelter wood or seed tree but it's basically that he's going to remove this many trees leave the overstory there and then try and regenerate get the regeneration underneath it and then with the pine have the option of just leaving it to to continue to grow to put on put on more value
0: i think our uh silviculture guidance kind of reflects that brad i think Ours is sort of based on our shelterwood guidance on uh, the system and protocols developed um, by Menominee uh, Tribe. Um, and I think it calls for like 50% canopy cover, but it says in there it could go almost down to a seed tree. Yeah. Because yeah. really, in that system, they're just essentially trying, not necessarily providing the shelter, but they want to just provide adequate seed distribution. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I had, gosh. I didn't talk with them the last time, but I, uh, a couple of years ago I talked with Marshall up at mm-hmm. the nominees, yeah
0: yep, Marshall Peacor, Yep.
2: and we got talking about it the uh, uh shade on the white pine fifty percent is actually does suppress white pine growth. We both talked about that, and, and both our feeling was you really want seventy percent opening mm-hmm. to really yeah. get the best white pine white pine growth here in the northeast, you know we haven't talked about the weevil yet, but Uh, I've done some, uh, the FIA data, forest inventory analysis data that's been done in the States actually has been doing a measure on white pine weevil damage on white pine over the last, since 2015 to 2017. And it's like in Maine, it's half the white pine show evidence of weevil damage. New Hampshire, it's 75%. Wisconsin, it's 25%. So if you you know you're complaining about the weevil is
0: yeah
2: you, you don't have it as bad as we do.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that brings up a really interesting point, Bill, because so much of the silviculture historically and today is tied to some of these pests and diseases, primarily weevil and blister rust.
2: Yeah, and, and we weevils the big one. Yeah, and that's where you no. Know, if you have the, these high densities of, of white pine regenerating, your 10,000 is probably overkill, but, you know, the high densities, you know, we were looking at it that even, you know, open up the stand, you may get more weevil damage, but you have so many stems of white pine coming up that you're going to have, you know, uh, especially when we're talking low density management, you're going to have plenty of good looking stems once you start thinning it, thinning it out to, you know, even, you know, to justify the increased growth that you get with the the lower coverage of the pine regeneration, is definitely going to be worth it, and you're still likely to find find um, good trees. The other thing we, we he's noticed, and they they've noticed in the mill, you get some of these large, big 30 inch straight white pine, and they'll saw it, and then you can see the the earlier parts of the stem show the sweeps of the weevil damage. Yeah, the yeah, pine growing in these, these higher densities will straighten itself out quite quickly.
0: Yeah, and that's really yeah. the direction our guidance changed over the last 20 years, whereas before the recommendation was to grow that under 40 to 50 percent canopy until, you know, 20 feet high to uh, um, discourage that yeah. weevil. But then we kind of revamped that to sort of what Marshall told you is to provide near full sunlight as long as you had the densities yeah. then to correct and yep. they had actually dissected mm-hmm. white pine saw log trees um you know tree length and looked at all the old weevil hits uh that were evident even in high-grade logs so as as long as that density is there they self-correct
2: so that's looking at regenerating it is um uh, mm-hmm. i know with the Previous guidelines, Forest Service guidelines, they'll still talk about 50% cover because that will reduce uh, incidence of weevil damage. But when I looked at stands where, you know, growing under different densities, wow, uh, that really suppresses the growth of the pine. So it's really that 70% opening really, you know, from what I've seen is, makes a big difference in the growth. And is probably what I would recommend, as long as you can get the high density of pine regeneration You know, that's that's the Mm -hmm. amount of sun you probably would best grow the pine under.
0: And maybe you in those those poor soils that you have, maybe you don't need to think about this for regeneration aspect. But do you see in the northeast uh, use of scarification, for example, or prescribed fire to prepare seed beds and get regeneration?
2: Definitely scarification. And I mean, some will just get a skitter, tie a, an old log behind it and drag it. When they see a cone crop coming in, they'll, they'll tie up a log and just drag it through the stand to, to scarify the soil. So that is the primary treatment if you're trying to catch a, a seed crop of the white pine. Um, fire would make a lot of sense. It's just that Maine has no dry season. So it's, uh, you know, people will try and do prescribed fire for, for various habitat treatments. And, you know, you could you could wait a couple of years before you get the proper climate conditions to, to burn a stand. So, yeah, um, fire is just not typically used here because it's, it's just too moist this close to the ocean.
0: Yeah. So your burn windows are pretty limited on what you can do. Yeah. We don't see much use yeah. of prescribed fire either. But it, as you said, it makes sense. Um, and, you know, and I think... Um, uh, Our fire ecologist would say that was probably a common element in those stands historically.
2: Where they do use it, and this is will bring in from where it's good to get to know what's happening in other regions, down in southern Appalachia, so on the Virginia-North Carolina border and on the Blue Ridge Plateau. Down there in Virginia, it's white pine and near Galax. Virginia is the most commercially most important species so it's it's definitely prevalent down there and their primary management is plantation they almost have no weevil damage down there so they do 10 by 12 spacing of the white pine they will burn down there so down there that standard part of their white pine management is after harvest they'll go in Mm -hmm. clean up what they can and they will do a prescribed burn to open up the stand get rid of you know, try and reduce some of the competition and whatever debris is left on the field, and then they'll plant afterwards. So down there, prescribed fire is actively used in the management of white pine, particularly in the in the plantation management.
1: And you mentioned it previously, and I, just to circle back slightly, but definitely, you guys don't have a lot of plantation white pine in Maine, correct?
2: Nope, nope. The so we will kind of discouraged it, but also uh, it's it's real, easy to get natural regeneration from it so most people who understand what they're doing can get good pine regeneration in the stands where they where they want to regenerate it uh, the one company here that does a lot of plantations and they're really trying to find better ways to do that is Irving Woodlands and they have a tree improvement growth program for eastern white pine uh and do a lot of active plantings both in canada next to maine and New brunswick and then also they own about a million acres in maine and so they're also doing pine plantations in maine so so they do the plantations and they're willing to invest in making sure it's done right reminds me of the menomonees when i visited there they will do plantations but boy they they are intensive managers and if you're going to do pine plantations and make it successful yeah you've got to be committed do that and uh but you will get a good good tree coming coming from that
0: we haven't uh mentioned this one yet um but it's uh white pine blister rust has had you know Mm -hmm. a significant impact at least here in our state and how much white pine has been emphasized um in management you know we have that history of trying Mm -hmm. to eradicate all the ribes in the state which didn't work out so well um And uh, I think over time, we've learned uh, that blister rust in our state here is a little bit dependent on site as far as the risk level. Um, And a lot of sites, the risk level is lower and we work around it. What's the situation with management and blister rust in the Northeast?
2: Okay, in Maine and probably we're looking, looking northern New England, also New Hampshire and Vermont, I looked at that that agricultural land clearing that occurred from mid 1700s to 1800s was the first blister rust control program that they it wiped out a lot of the ribies or that's what I presume because you go through a lot of the stands in in Maine and until you get to the mountains there there's almost no ribies so that that's had an influence and in the state of Maine since blister rust fungus was introduced around 1900 has had an eradication program but not landscape scale eradication it was white pine stands so the state would subsidize landowners for removing ribes within a thousand feet of their white pine stands and there's uh we still have uh, Mm. a ban of planting of ribes in the white pine growing areas of the state especially the the european uh, ribes so we still have a ribies control that is part of the the management here in controlling the the presence of ribes um, uh, within the state, and so you know uh, they can't sell the nurseries can't sell ribies They some tried, and the main forest service will will ask them to, to stop doing that. And then oh, in early two thousands maybe there claimed some uh, breeders had claimed that they found a European. Uh, ribes nigra that was resistant to white pine and New Hampshire tried planting some in three locations and then about five years later they found white pine blisterous fungus growing on these supposed resistant varieties. So you know finding ribes has not been an issue in the state and it's still people will use herbicides to control ribes to minimize it. So We have very little incidence of white pine Mm. blister rust in in the state at this point. So it's not considered to be a a limiting factor in any of our Mm. plantings or any of our management areas.
0: Yeah, I think we've found in the state, uh, as I said, some of the high risk areas are areas where it's high humidity levels for long periods of time. So um, like tops of ridges um, or along Lake Superior um belt there uh, has high incidence uh, but in other areas we've been able to work around it you know thin it out that sort of thing yeah i
2: think that's primarily you will see it here uh, i see it very rarely i mm-hmm. i remember my time in minnesota yeah I, it was much more prevalent from what i remember in minnesota than what i've seen in maine so yeah you do have a higher incidence there i'm not sure if my sense it's because of the ribes population for whatever reason i would suspect it's higher there Moisture, uh, falls, we have fog occurring most mornings. So I would expect that mm. moisture condition wise. Yeah. We had the ribes here. We'd be seeing a lot more blister rust. So ribes mm-hmm. is still an important factor. And if people are growing white pine, now in Maine it's definitely, yes. you, you see any ribes, you've got to get rid of it. It'd be the recommendation. And it would seem like that would be true in your area that if they're trying to manage white pine, that, you know, within a thousand feet, the the mm. spores that infect the white pine can't go more than a thousand feet. So you don't need to eradicate it everywhere, but where you have your commercial stands, mm. yeah, you want to keep, keep that area clean of the rives.
1: I do remember Greg, um, sometime reading about, um, civilian conservation corps efforts at rives and kind of removing it in certain areas. Uh, and, and recently someone had gone back and looked at those areas and yeah. said, yeah, it actually did make a difference.
2: Good. Maine Forest Service recommends though, that pulling it, man, that's tough. And you gotta make sure you get every uh, every piece of the, the root. So they primarily recommend if you're trying to control ribes is to use herbicide so that you know you're killing it. And you've got to follow up afterwards, come back in a few years and get rid of residual plants or anything that's come back from the seed to, to, to kill that back.
0: Bill, you know, for us, the weevil and blister rust have been the main insect disease issues, uh, for white pine. But I see a lot of discussion about other diseases and insects in white pine, um, some canker disease, other needle diseases. Is there something significant coming on the horizon that we need to be concerned about?
2: There's this canker disease that has been a focus of a a bit of research over the last 10 years. That's, um, Caused by the fungus Colleosporium, so it's referred to as Colleosporium canker. But I'm I'm convinced that's primarily a problem in unmanaged stands. It's where you get the it's too high a density. It's an opportunistic fungus, and you know, I, I'm now using that as an indicator. If I'm starting to see symptoms of that canker developing on the tree, saying this stand needs to be thinned. So if, you know that's mm-hmm. another one I'm using as an indicator of you know whether. It, whether a stand needs to be treated or not is if I'm seeing this, the prevalence of this canker increasing. So that one's where management can take care of it. The other one that's more worrisome for us in the Northeast, I don't think I, you've had to deal with it in the Midwest yet, um, but I have seen it in Southern Appalachian is what we call white pine needle damage. And this is a yellowing of the needles. It's like white pine has this fall needle drop where you get the old needles turning yellow and they all fall down and they all come down in the fall. Right. Around here, that's happening starting about third week of June into second week of July, that you're actually seeing trees yellowing up like that, like you would normally see in, in fall needle drop. And these are needle cast fungi that are infecting the trees and they're all native. And there's four, up to four different species that they're finding in there. So, you know, I believe it's really just looking at a natural population. Well, what's been associated with it uh, clearly is uh, high levels of spring precipitation. So the needles are infected when they're when the candles are expanding. So buds are broken and the needles are now expanding, and you've got about a couple of weeks in late. June. Well, here it's late June. I'm not mm-hmm. sure you know, how it works in Wisconsin, but it's as the needles are expanding, and that's going to become infected by by the fungus. And since 2007, when around the time this first was shown in maine you know over this 10 15 year period you know we've had the seven wettest springs on record and those are definitely associated with the increased Mm. development of the symptoms of the white pine needle damage so that is one that is definitely climate driven it's a a, a native dealing with native fungi that are out there so no you're not going to be able to to get rid of them they're they're well established out there uh and uh the only thing that seems to be a way of reacting with it is what we've talked about before is the trees under the lower densities have are healthy enough to tolerate these periodic stresses that that come on it the the trees that are under have another stress they die that, that's gen- my general rule is a tree can tolerate one stress and generally survive but but give it two stresses, and it's in trouble. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's going to, you know, very likely, it's not going to survive the, the second stress. So that's the problem with these high densities. You know, the pine will persist and eventually grow out of it. But if you get these uns- uh, additional stresses coming in, and climate is, you know, it can be either way. It can be drought, which is directly mm-hmm. related. Or what we're seeing with the bug pine needle damage, it's indirectly related. It's not, now we're getting too much water. Yeah. And the fungi is really uh, helping the, f- the fungal mm-hmm. fungal infection. So mm-hmm. the trees, the white pine grown that's managed well, uh, what we're seeing so far is in the best situation to, to be able to tolerate and recover from from these episodes that, that seem to be coming.
1: So so that's to say that climate change isn't necessarily, so it it will have these impacts, but overall you suspect that it's not gonna limit white pine in Maine over time.
2: It's not gonna limit. And one that we really wanna investigate is why is there no weevil down in North Carolina and Virginia? And uh, I showed this at the meeting, but it's like the summer in, (laughs) in in spruce pine, North Carolina, is the same as the summer in Augusta, Maine. So they do not get the heat. So the, basically, the evapotranspiration, uh, looking at the heat and precipitation loads in the summertime is the same in Maine and is the same in North Carolina. So that is not the stress uh, or the cha- climate change. The big difference is the wintertime. You know, basically, soil doesn't freeze down there or it gets down to 32 and doesn't get much colder. They And I looked at root activity. They have two months longer root hmm. activity down there Compared to the trees up here, or what I'm supposing based based on what I read, so the warmer winters down there are associated with uh, you know they have doubled the productivity down there than what you'll see in Wisconsin or here, of uh, the growth of the pine, and they have no weevil, so I'm suspecting it's something to deal with the winter conditions, that could very well explain the problem with weevil survival. Weevil survives as an adult in the duff layer, so that they could very well it's it seems reasonable to me that there may be something that this change in winter conditions is adversely affecting the weevil so the climate change it's it's the whole gamut of responses there it could have some favorable aspects to the tree and also unfavorable so that that we're trying to understand and Mm -hmm. you know use that to try and help manage the white pine but i Definitely look at it. So far, what I've seen, especially the managed pine, um, it's 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 gonna it's gonna do well with the the climate change and what I've seen with the warming winters, uh, the growth should be should be improving with the pine as we see the the warmer quick yeah. winter conditions. Like I'm seeing outside my window here, you know, it seems like January thaw came in mid December and hasn't left. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens.
1: That sounds similar to what we might be seeing here. Um, but I don't know that we have as complete a picture yet of of some of that stuff. But mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see how that turns out.
2: Yeah, Now, it's uh, definitely worth paying attention to what's going on. I'm I don't want to make predictions that we're you know, like with white pine needle damage. That just the precipitation occurred, and you know all of a sudden now we've got this problem. So I I'm, I can't predict what exactly is going to happen in the future. Outside of saying what I've seen hold up over time throughout for white pine management is if you manage the white pine, then you can manage these problems.
0: Well, that's one thing that I'm going to take away from this talk that we had today, just about that ability to maybe uh, help some of these issues just through good management of these stands. The other thing, too, just thinking because there's so much intersection in white pine Silviculture with these uh, forest health issues is thinking about other ways of looking at the stand, like you mentioned, of incidence of these needle diseases, of live crown ratio. Um, I think those are always all really important uh, ways of assessing the stand that we traditionally may not have assessed. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to walk away with yep. um, thinking about that more.
2: And that if you can recognize these, like I, I did up on the Menominee. Uh, uh, holdings is it's tell how healthy are the trees and then you know does this stand really need to get managed now or not and so if you begin to recognize some of the issues that can develop on the white pine you can use that as kind of the guidance as to well yeah this stand is doing pretty good that you don't want to enter it now we can yeah it's okay probably for the next five years where another stand you can look at it and say well if we don't do something now then it may not respond in the future
1: yeah I, I love mm-hmm. the idea, you know, it seems to me like, at least in our experience here, and Greg, maybe you've seen this, like, white pine is kind of this, like, we have to be silviculturally, or so, have some silvicultural humidity, or humility, not humidity, hum- <laughs> humility, because sometimes we, because sometimes we think things are going to turn out a certain way, and then given enough time, we find out it's not exact, and so the examples of, like, the the weevil damage, you know, we we had one idea, but it proved to be not necessarily that way. And then blister rust has not turned out to be exactly what we thought it was going to be. So we we just kind of have to be a little careful with stuff like that. And it, but it sounds like you guys have a good grounding in your management.
2: Uh, a lot of people are doing it, so it's you know my hats off to the foresters that it's really I've got to talk with them to understand why they're doing what they're doing. But yeah, you know, they they've got a lot of experience behind it, and thankfully we've got the the markets to where. A lot of people pay attention to it and then are motivated to make sure that they they maintain a, a good white pine, healthy white pine population in in the forest.
0: Well, we're waiting for those markets to come over here. So <laughs> we got the <laughs> just
2: grow the pine, I think. I think this is one case, if you grow well, it, it's will growing, uh, it's growing. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> Bill, I want to thank you for just kind of this conversation today. Like I said, in the beginning, it's, re- I always get a ton out of just comparing what's going on between our different regions. Um, I wish we did more of that. And so I just, uh, always walk away with valuable stuff. So thank you very much.
2: We've got to, we've got to maintain these connections. So, yes. So- yeah, let's, let's keep doing this.
1: And we have to get you back here, Bill, because we didn't get a chance to drive around with you. I think that would have been fascinating to get your perspective actually being in one of our stands, too. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. And be happy
2: to
0: do that. Some of the other sites, too, or some of yeah. the other forest types. Yeah. Yep. Well, yeah. Again, thanks, Bill. Um, and uh, we will keep in touch. Very good.
1: That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments,
0: questions, tips, and share them with our listeners. So, Brad, this week we received a question in the Dropbox that may be a bit more philosophical, let's call it. Oh, good. And I know know you like those, so... Oh, they're the best questions. um, I'm going to pull that one out. Andrew from New York asks, what our thoughts are on northern hardwood management, specifically, is it more art? than science since it takes so long to see the results of our silviculture well
1: what do you think i think that he he raises a really good point that it's a question i think in silviculture we always have to wrestle do we do we really know what we know right (laughs) like are we going to be proven wrong about something in the long run because we just have a
0: really short Timeline that we're working with. I I don't know. I wasn't thinking of it that deeply. (laughs) I was was thinking of it as, you know, Northern hardwood is, as we say, one of our most complicated uh, silvicultural systems, um, at least things like single tree selection. So there is a lot of nuances to that that may be considered more of the art than the science. Uh, But that being said is there is a lot of science backing up, at least, you know, where, how we develop these systems and what we expect um, the outcomes will be from them. So I would say I agree with Andrew to a point, but I think it's not to say that uh, just because it's long-term, there isn't science involved.
1: Yeah. I think this does feel like, though, a little bit of the, like, we have a lot of confidence and then we'll be shown later on that maybe we weren't confident for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Like uh, our good friend, Jed Menier, he's, he's raised some really interesting points about uh, fire as a part of the, the history and kind of the, uh, the, the ecology of red pine and red pine systems. And I wouldn't be surprised. It's one of those places where I wouldn't be surprised if there are lots of things, we always talk about wind disturbance. I wouldn't be surprised if in some way, shape or form, fire is talked about in these contexts, maybe not as that driving disturbance in all northern hardwood systems, but but it, maybe it was present. We just don't think of it at all. It just feels to me like there's a
0: big place for humility when we start to talk about these things. Okay. Hey, well, now you've gone to fire in northern hardwoods. That sounds like a long uh, drinking conversation. So Break out the beer, Greg. <laughs> uh, but thanks, Andrew, for the question. Brad, Andrew also asked us, to bring back the phony ads. Do you remember those? They were one of my favorites. Okay, so, okay, Andrew, this one's for you.
1: Want to take your forest reconnaissance to the next level? Then take off with the Advanced Edge 1000 Mind Numbing Drone.
0: Uh, You know, Brad, last night I had to stop by my wife Aunt Karen's house to deliver an apple pie for the church dinner. They have one of those monster, moonster landers. I don't know. You know the one. Anyway, it's missing an ear. I think it got taken off in a badger attack or something. Hey, I saw a badger once. That was over by the Halverson's farm. You know, that rundown place. They never picked up their old cars. It's over by Jed's old house. You know, I like apple pie, but only if it's got enough cinnamon. Can't have too much cinnamon. Man, can you believe that, Doug? Geez, he got that team leader job. He's only been here five years and he thinks he knows everything. I can't believe it. Well, anyway, Brad, I wonder if that's... The Edge 1000 will make you want to fly
1: away. Don't leave the office without one. LOL, Brad. I thought every office had one. In any event, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming.
0: All right, take care, everyone, and as always, thanks to our team, Megan Espy, our Editor-in-Chief, Logan Badon, our new IT master, theme music by Paul Freder, and of course, UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center.